Genesis. Easy to find, first book of the Bible. And we are in part two of our sermon series on prayer, Teach Us to Pray. Asking and answering the question, what is prayer? We'll take a look at Genesis chapter 3, and then we'll make our way into Genesis chapter 4. Hope you enjoyed that song. That is one of my favorite new songs that is out there. A wonderful song, uh, speaking of uh, the wonderful gospel. We preach and believe and proclaim. That is where sin um, abounded, grace abounded all the more. Where Our sins there are many, His mercy is more. Amen? We do better. Amen? Amen? Amen to that. Okay. We're going to pray, and then we're going to dive into our sermon this morning. So would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for the incredible privilege to call you our Father, that we can come not on the basis of any merit that we bring, any good works that we can perform, but that we humbly trust in the good news, this gospel of uh, that we're saved by grace through faith, that you have, in your great kindness to us, sent your, your very Son, to live the perfect life that is absolutely necessary to be with you for all eternity, that he accomplished that in his perfect life, and that he lived the life that we needed, and that he died the death that we deserve, and that though our sins, they were many, your mercy is more. And Jesus, thank you for paying for our sins on the cross, and thank you for being raised on the third day, ascending into heaven, and allowing us to come and to call upon your name, through faith in you. Lord, we pray this morning that you would continue to teach us how to pray as we learn what prayer is, as we call upon the name of the Lord. We ask it in the name of Jesus, and all of God's people say, Amen. Well, friends, before we can put anything into practice, we need to know what that activity is. That is to say, before we do we must know. Or you could put it this way, before we apply, we need to interpret. Or we could just simply say that misinterpretation leads to misapplication. Misinterpretation leads to misapplication. Let me illustrate if you will. Did you ever hear the story of a, of a guy who got his mom a rather unique Mother's Day gift? He decided to go all out, and so he spent $10,000 for a parrot that could speak in four different languages and sing a number of hymns. Now, he knew that his mom would love this. She was a Christian lady, and, uh, and so he went all out. He got this incredible parrot, and he sent it to his mom for, for Mother's Day. And he waited a day or two, and he didn't hear back from his mom. So he was kind of getting a little nervous. You know, did she like this? And so he decided to call his mom up. And he says, hi, mom. How did, how did you like the bird? To which she replied, it was great, son. Thank you. And so he was a little relieved. Wonderful. Glad you liked the gift, mom. And so filled with pride, he asked his mother, well, what was your favorite part? To which she replied, the thighs. They were delicious. <laughs> Friends, wrong interpretation leads to wrong application. And now that we've been introduced in part one of our sermon series on, uh, on, on our need to ask the Lord to teach us how to pray in its basic structure in the Lord's Prayer, what I'd like to do this morning is sort of take a step backwards. In part two of Teach Us How to Pray, I want to ask and answer really the most fundamental of questions about prayer, and that is the question, what is it? What is it? 
Because before we uh, practice prayer, we need to understand, biblically speaking, what is this thing that we are calling prayer? What, how do we define it? Better, better yet, how does the Bible, how does the Scripture define it? We need to, de- to define our terms and look into the Scriptures to see what prayer is. So what I'd like to do this morning in uh, this sermon, two parts, sort of two movements to this sermon. Number one, what I'd like to do is to begin with a more holistic answer to that question from the entire scope of scriptures. That is, looking, if we were to look at all of the prayers listed in the Bible, could we discern what is this thing that we're calling prayer? So we'll do that in short. And then I'd like to look at a more specific answer from a more specific section of Scripture. We'll be in Genesis chapter 3, looking at verse 15, and then we'll make our way into chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, and we'll settle down on Genesis chapter 4, 25 and 26. So that's where we're going this morning. Let's begin with the answer to the question, what is prayer, by looking at the broad sweep or scope of the scriptures on prayer. So, for starters, I think we need to get this out of the way. As far as I'm concerned, the Bible doesn't ever just sort of come right out and say, this is what prayer is. This is what prayer is. This is how how we define prayer. I don't think there's a single verse in the Bible that gives us a clear definition per se. And so what we need to do then to discover what prayer is, is, is one of two things. Number one, we need to look at the words in the Bible that our English Bibles translate as prayer. Does that make sense? So when you read the Bible and, it's, and your English Bible says prayer or similar words, we need to look at those words and say, what do these words actually mean? I think they'll help us understand the nature of prayer. Secondly, what we need to do is look at every single prayer in the Bible and look for similarities. Uh, to use a math term, we can, uh, can we find a common denominator, if you will, to, to help us understand what prayer is? So that's, that's what we're going to attempt to do. First of all, let's tackle the second question first. What is prayer if we were to look at the words in the New Testament and the Old Testament? We're not going to get into all the details, but needless to say, this is, uh, this is rather, rather hard. Before we look at the words, um, if we were to look at every single passage on prayer, and, and friends, there's quite a few. The Bible is replete with prayers and references to prayers. In fact, prayers and its references appear uh, in 62 out of 66 books of the Bible. So just off the top, if I were to ask you, does God think it important that we understand how to pray simply from the number of times we see prayer in the Bible? Yes or no? Yes. 62 out of 66. Uh, absolutely. Song of Solomon, Obadiah, Haggai, and Second John uh, are the only four not. Not only that, but we get several books that not only mention prayer, but that are Um, overwhelmingly give detail to prayer. In fact, the book of Psalms is essentially a book full of prayers, right? So God gives us an entire book on prayer. Now, according to one source, Herbert Lockyer's All the Prayers of the Bible, he suggests, now various people, this is not an exact science here, but he suggests that if you were to go through the entire Bible, that you would get, are you ready? 650 prayers recorded in the Bible. 
Is that astounding? That, that is a lot of prayers. He suggests that there are 450 recorded answers to prayers in the Bible. So if you were to read through every single prayer in the Bible, that would be a lot of data to observe, a lot of data to learn, to learn from. You want to know how many I made it through this week? You take a guess. Let's just say there's 650. I made it through about 200 this week. And I looked at every prayer and I read through it and I, I made it about one third of the way there. I was like, I think I got the point here. You know, like I, I just, I just gave up <laughs> at that point. So, so don't judge. Uh, that, that's how far I got. But that simple little, little exercise, uh, uh, two points and they're simple. You're going to say, duh, Pastor Trey. Don't say it, but you could. Um, two simple points emerge from that little exercise. Number one, prayer is speech. Prayer is speech. They're words, right? This is talking, if you will, either out loud or in our own minds. Prayer, at its essence, if you just want to simplify it, it is communication. And secondly, from this little exercise, prayer is communicating, talking with whom? God, right? And so, very simply, kind of common denominator, you look at the prayers in the Bible, there's a whole host of variations. People pray in all sorts of tones with all sorts of words about all sorts of things. But if you just want to boil it down, prayer, it's talking to God. It is maybe more than that, but it's not less than talking with the eternal God of the universe. Secondly, we can look at the words in the Bible. So let's do that really quickly. You'll see that on the, on the screen behind me. In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, there are four basic words translated in our Bibles as prayer. You can see them. If you know Hebrew, you can read them. If not, don't worry about it because I, I hardly can either. But just take a look at, at what these words mean. Uh, the, the word means to intervene or to pray, duh, or to ask God for something earnestly, to earnestly ask him for something. It can mean to, to plea, to, to, to make a plea to God. It can mean to entreat him earnestly. This last word I find interesting in Hebrew. It means to cry out, to call upon, or to ask. And so simply from what these words mean, we can see that prayer is it's, it's talking to God. It's communicating with God. What about the words in the New Testament? You can see them there. We're not going to go through them, but it means to petition a deity. Yeah, that's, that's prayer. How about this one? To beg. To beg God for something. To ask God. To demand. To plead. To, to ask God a question or to give him a request. From this very simple exercise, we see what we've confirmed from our 200 or so prayers in the Bible. And that is, prayer is talking. It is asking God for something. It's pleading with him. It's entreating him. It's begging him to do something or to not do something. In essence, it is talking to God, asking him to act. But the question then becomes, what are we supposed to ask him for? What are we pleading about? What are we crying out because of? And I think as we transition here momentarily to our our section in Genesis 4, we're going to get at least a, a, a beginning answer to that. So what is prayer? Well, here's a few definitions that I looked into, uh, confirmed what my little biblical study uh, revealed. Dr. Constable, one of my professors, he has written a, a wonderful book called uh, What the Bible Teaches About Prayer, A Biblical Theology of Prayer. So here's a doctorate of theology, brilliant man, right, a wonderful uh, professor, He simply says this, essentially, prayer is talking to God. It is expressing our thoughts 
and feelings to deity? Well, that's probably what most of us would have answered when I, if I were to ask you the question, what is prayer? What about the Tyndale Bible commentary, just as an example? It says prayer is the addressing and the petitioning of God. So we talk to God and we ask Him to do something. What about John Calvin, the great uh, German reformer? His definition is a little bit more specific. He says prayer is, quote, the communion of men with God. So it's in the context of a relationship with God through faith in Christ. The communion of men with God by which, now notice this, they appeal to Him. So we're talking to God. We're asking Him to do something. That's the, the essence of prayer. The communion of God with men by which they appeal to him in person. Notice, what is it that we are asking him to do? Concerning his, say it out loud, church, what? Promises. Concerning his promises. And so I think John Calvin is on to something here. Prayer is talking to God. We're asking him to do something. But what is it, essentially, that we are asking him to do? Calvin suggests that we pray primarily for God to keep his promises. Gary Miller, in a wonderful book, Calling on the Name of the Lord, a biblical theology of prayer, he picks up where Calvin uh, left off, asserting this. He says, prayer is calling on God to come through on his promise, or promises, if you want to make it plural. I think he's on to something. And so now, with Bibles open to Genesis 3, let's sort of get into this. Because what uh, Gary Miller does is he bases his definition, prayer is calling on God to come through on his promises from Genesis chapter 4, verses 25 through 26. Some people, and I happen to agree, think that this is the very first prayer, the very first recorded prayer in the Bible. Genesis chapter 4, verses 25 through 26. In fact, Miller calls this verse, using a construction term, a load-bearing verse. Let me ask you, what, do you, what does he mean by that? He says this verse, this, this first verse on prayer in the entire Bible, he suggests is load-bearing. Well, uh, from experience... Uh, I've learned what that means. Now, you all know me well enough to know that I'm not handy. I don't know much about construction. It's, it's kind of not my thing. However, we learned from our recent house remodel and from our experience that some walls in a house or a building are non-load-bearing, which means what? If you want to knock it out, can you? Yeah, knock it out, baby. Boom. Knock it out. You can do that, right? And we, and we, and we did a little bit of that. You don't have to worry about it. You, no, no need for additional support. However, some walls are load-bearing. And that means what? They support the structure of the house. And if you were to knock it out, what would happen? Well, probably not good things, right? And so just, just kind of a little letting you in. So this is, this is what we were dealing with. We had a kitchen. Look at the left. We had a kitchen, and they had an attached, um, uh, an attached room that they opened up. It was once a porch. And you'll notice that beam right there. You see that beam? There were two beams there uh, supporting the weight of the house. Now, I didn't like those beams. I was like, man, why would you have these here? This is an awful place. Let's just knock them down. Thank you. Some of you are like, Trey, that's not smart. You don't do that. You know, until so like, maybe you should call a contractor. So I called a local contractor and I was like, I don't want these here. He's like, well, they are load bearing, right? You can't do that. And so we ended up, as you can see, putting this really large beam up above in place of them to bear 
the load of the house. Moving on from our house project, I'd like to do that as well. So moving on, <laughs> moving on from that. The point is, is that this verse in Genesis, it's load-bearing. It's the first reference to prayer. And, and in a sense, it, has, uh, it bears the load as we look at prayer moving on. What he means is that it helps, it is fundamental in our understanding of prayer. Okay, so Genesis chapter 3 is where we are as we move from the scope of prayer uh, in Scripture to a particular section of Scripture on prayer. Let me just sort of catch you up. We're early on in the, in the biblical story. In chapters 1 and 2, we see that God created everything. He creates a perfect world. He places Adam and Eve, the first couple, uh, as his image bearers and as his vice rulers in this wonderful world in relationship with one another, in relationship with him, to glorify him and to, to bear his image. However, we know in Genesis chapter 3, what happens? There's a sneaky snake, right? We know that this is uh, none other than Satan himself. And Eve and Adam choose to disobey God. They sin against God. They choose to replace God rather than reflect God. And all of creation is infected and affected by this disease of sin, right? Sin enters the world and thus death. And we see in Genesis chapter 3 that God uh, gives uh, a set of consequences. He talks about the curse of sin. And he starts with a snake and then he moves on. But in speaking of the curse to the snake, take a look at Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. Another load-bearing verse, if you will. We have this astounding promise of rescue. At the very beginning, God says in verse 15, And... To the snake, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He, that is, a particular offspring of Eve, he will crush you, Satan, he will crush your head. And you, Satan, will strike his heel. We could speak for many minutes on this verse. But needless to say, what we have here is that God is promising that one day a descendant of Eve would crush the snake, would crush the head of Satan and restore creation to what God intended it to be. He would take care of the sin problem. He would erase the curse. And so the question then must be, from the very start of the book of the Bible is who is this offspring going to be? This is a spectacular promise that what humankind made wrong, a human being would make right. Who is this offspring going to be? That question lays heavy on our minds as we make our way into chapter 4. So look at chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Adam and Eve, outside of the garden, they're ashamed. Sin has entered into the world. God in His grace has, has covered their sins, essentially, and given them clothes to wear. Verse 1, Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. And so we see the first human family is created. And the question on their minds and on our minds should be, Cain has been born. A son. 
an offspring, a seed of the woman has been born. Could he be the one? Could Cain be the one to fulfill God's promise? However, all you have to do is keep reading in chapter 4 to discover it's not going to be Cain. He comes home from the first church picnic with his uh, hands bloody, right? And, and, and we, he, he murders his brother. He's banished by God. It's clear. He's not the one. He's not the offspring to fulfill this promise. As we keep reading throughout chapter 4, we've seen uh, the story of Cain's family. You think maybe you have some sort of eh, black sheep in your family, kind of some family, and you look at the family tree, you're like, yeah, let's cross them off, you know. You think you're your family tree. You just kind of read how uh, the family tree here ends with a guy named Lamech in verse 18. You can look at it, but this is a bad dude. If you think Cain was bad, he murdered his brother. His great-great-great-grandson was even worse. In verse 23, he, 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 he brags to his wives, yes, plural, wives, God's design already falling apart. He brags to his wives how he has out-murdered his great-great-great-granddad. How's the world looking so far? Awful. Right, Sin has affected everything and everyone. And so this promise that God's going to bring forth from the seed of Eve, someone to make this right, is prominent in our minds. And that's where we get to our load-bearing verse, verse 25 and 26. Adam made love to his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel, the murdered son, since Cain killed him. And then we learn in verse 26, Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh. And then we get to our reference. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. And so here we have, in the context of murder and polygamy, and all sorts of badness, people, most likely Seth's descendants, people started to call on the name of the Lord. With Abel being murdered, Adam and Eve have a third son. His name, his name means granted because God granted her another child in place of Abel. See, when she gave birth to Cain, she had to be thinking, this could be the one. This might be the promised deliverer. But she gave birth to a murderer instead. Instead of being despondent or disillusioned by Cain's life, now, with the birth of Seth, she says, God has granted me another, literally, seed. Another child. Another seed. Don't tell me that this promise, that the seed of a woman coming from Eve, who's going to fix this mess, is not on her mind. Could it be Seth? It's, it's, not, it's not Cain. He's a murderer. It's not Abel. He's dead. Could it be Seth? Well, as we read forth, we, the answer quickly becomes, again, well, it, it's not Seth, but it could, it could be. It's going to be someone from his line. Now, notice what Seth names his, his son, Enosh. If you think that Seth thinks it's going to be him, or you think if Seth thinks it might be his son, Enosh means frail one or mortal. So, so in other words, he, instead of boasting in his strength like Lamech did, Seth acknowledges his weakness and the weakness of his son, frail one. No, it's not going to be Seth. It's not going to be Enosh. However, it would be one from his line. Friends, do we know who this one is? Please say yes. 
Yes, we do. What's his name? Jesus, thank you. Very good. Yes, it is Jesus. According to Luke's genealogy, he is the son of Seth, the son of Adam. He would be the one to break the curse. And so this ultimately, this promise is fulfilled in Christ. But it is at that point in time, it's bad. People want God to answer his promise. So what do they do? Take a look at the tail end of verse 26 again. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. The first reference to prayer. And in its context, it seems to be an expression of their desire. God, fulfill your promise. Fulfill Genesis 3.15. Crush the head of the serpent. Restore broken creation and broken humanity. They were, again in Miller's words, quote, they were calling on God to come through on his promise of a son who would reverse the curse and defeat the serpent. Now, what does this mean? If this is a reference to prayer, we call on the name of the Lord. What does it mean to call on his name? Well, the name of someone is is their character. It's who they are, right? It's not just saying a, a name magically, like an incantation. No, this is this is calling upon the character of Yahweh. Capital L O R D. John on Wuchiqua again, in his wonderful book on prayer, illustrates what what this means for us, calling on the name of the Lord. He says, and I quote, it's a cry for help. It's a cry for help. Like when someone shouts, call 911. He says, we don't ask ourselves, after I call 911, what's the nature of the conversation going to be like? He says, to call 911 is to make an appeal for help based on what we know 911 is. It's an emergency line. And he says the same is true for calling on the name of the Lord. Prayer then, from the outset, is our calling upon God to fulfill his promise or his promises as he has revealed it to us in his word, in light of the reality of his character, in light of who he is. And so two points of prayer, two points of prayer as we wrap up. Number one, prayer's context. And number two, prayer's content. First of all, prayer's context. Prayer's context, as we see from this very first reference in Genesis 4, is that prayer happens in a fallen world. Notice, at that time. At what time? Well, broadly speaking, the first reference to prayer comes at a time after the fall, after the curse. It was during a time when evil men boasted of evil things, when families were disintegrating, when, when, when a fellow human being murders and hurts other human beings. Friends, do we still live at that time? Yes, we do. We still live at that time. Dr. Constable comments on this connection between people calling on God in prayer in the context of the fall, saying this, Why did the descendants of Seth call on the Lord? Apparently, it was because as the number of humans increased, the influence of the fall and human sin became more obvious. Some humans recognized their need for God and began to seek His presence and His help more seriously and more consistently. Thus, at this very early stage in human history, perhaps the third generation, we see human beings sensing their need for divine enablement as a result of the fall. Friends, the simple point that I want to make 
is that we need to pray because we're not in the new heavens and the new earth yet. I mean, we're not there yet. We pray because we too live in this sin-cursed world. We pray because the world is not as it should be, and we are not yet who we are meant to be. We pray because there's pain, and because there's suffering, and because there's sin, and because there's sorrow, and because there's rebellion. Our common experience is fallen human beings. And for those of us who are Christians, those of us who are in Christ as redeemed human beings, awaiting full redemption, it causes us, God, you haven't fulfilled your promises yet. You haven't done it yet. We're still in this state. And so, may your kingdom come. Next, prayer's content. This is one of the most important points I think we can glean in our study of prayer. Prayer's content is that it is a responsive call. Notice, at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Friends, prayer is speaking back to a God who has already spoken to us. That's hugely significant. Prayer, in its essence, is responsive. We don't begin the conversation. God has begun the conversation, and we have the revelation of his conversation with us in our scriptures. And so prayer is a response to the word of God. In his wonderful book, pastor and author Eugene Peterson, you may be familiar with him from his popular paraphrase of the Bible, The Message, he writes about this. He says, prayer is never the first word. It's always the second word. God has the first word. Prayer is answering speech. It's not primarily address, but response. He says, essential to the practice of prayer is to fully realize the secondary quality. Prayer is it's not something we think up to get God's attention or to enlist his favor. Prayer is answering speech. Friends, that's what our prayer to our Heavenly Father is. Because God has spoken to us, because he has revealed himself to us, we respond in prayer. That's like any conversation, any relationship. Somebody initiates Hi, how are you doing today? And the other person does what? Oh, well, thank you. How are you? There's initiation and there's response. Our prayers are a response to a God who has already spoken. Why then, he writes, why does it seem like we initiate prayers to God? In your experience, let me ask you, if I were to, if I were to ask you, who speaks first in prayer, you or God, what would you say? You might say, well, I do. Dear God, you know. But in reality, that's not true. He says, quote, because we are so much more aware of ourselves than we are of God. That's why we are confused. He says we are far more self-conscious than God-conscious. And so when we pray, what we are ordinarily conscious of is that we're getting the first word with God. He says, but our consciousness lies. So how then shall we learn to pray? Friends, what does it look like for us to learn how to pray? How should we as Christians learn how to pray? I love this image. He likens the Christian learning how to pray to an infant learning how to talk. Now, maybe you've been there as a parent. You know what that's like. He writes these words. He says, we learn language by being spoken to. Just consider that. We learn how to talk by what? People talking to us, right? We are plunged at birth into a sea of language, hundreds of thousands of words, for days and weeks and months. We were spoken, he said, we were, they were spoken to us before we began to answer, to speak our own words. All speech is answering speech. 
We were all spoken to before we spoke. And then he applies this to our learning to pray. He says at some point in our Christian life, we find ourselves answering God. The usual way to describe this language is with the word of prayer. So friends, let me close with this admonition. If you feel like your prayer life is anemic, if you feel like you don't know how to pray, if you feel like you don't know what to pray for, if you feel like, I am uh, I'm not a good prayer, I don't know how to do it, I don't know what to do, the first place you need to go, are you ready? Is this book, okay? This is how we learn how to pray. Because prayer is in response. Just think about this for a moment. The scripture is key in shaping our prayers. How can we call upon God in our prayers? If that's what prayer is, calling upon God to keep his promises, how can we do that if we don't know what God has promised? Fair? How can we do that if we don't know what God has promised? We can't pray. How can we call upon his character and base our prayers on his character if we don't know what he has revealed about himself? Fair? How can we praise him if we don't know what type of God he is? How can we in our prayers confess our sins? God, I have had a poor attitude today and I said something I shouldn't have and God, I had this thought and I shouldn't have. How can we rightly confess our sin to God in prayer if we don't know what he considers to be right and wrong? How can we? How can we pray right without this book? How can we pray for others in intercession? How can we pray for our neighbors? How can we pray for our our kids? How can we pray for our fellow Christians about what God would desire for them in, in any particular situation if we don't know what God has revealed about His will for all people, generally speaking? Do you see how fundamental it is that we immerse ourselves first in God's spoken word to us so that then... Like a, like a little baby. Ba, ba, ba. Da, da, da. Ga, ga, ga. What do we do? We're imitating the speech that has been spoken to us in the word of God. And friends, that, that is what prayer is. Let's pray. Oh God, we need you to teach us to pray. Help us to call upon your name in the midst of this sin-stained world knowing that you have sent our Redeemer and that he has come and died for our sins and that he is coming again to establish his kingdom, to, to, to make a new heaven and a new earth and to make all things right. And yet until that time, until that time, may we, like the descendants of Enosh, call upon your name. We ask it in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. See you next week, guys.